Thanks, Beck. Uh, well, like Josh said before, it's Palm Sunday this Sunday. Uh, for those of us who've maybe been in churches like Anglican churches before, that might sound familiar to others, uh, perhaps not. It's, it's the Sunday in the year before the Easter weekend where we, we remember, we celebrate what we just read in this passage, Jesus coming into Jerusalem uh, to uh, defeat sin and death on the cross and to rise a new life for us. Uh, it's called Palm Sunday, but you know, there's four gospel accounts and Luke doesn't actually include palm branches in his account. So there are no palm branches in our reading tonight, but it's Palm Sunday nonetheless. Uh, we're going to start by, by kind of putting ourselves in, in the story, in the scene, uh, trying to imagine what it would be like to be there on this uh, first Palm Sunday. So let's place ourselves kind of among the crowd and see Jesus, the King, arrive in his city. So it's, it's the time of the Passover feast. This is the, like, the biggest holiday of the year for the Jewish people. And so Jerusalem is heaving. There's normally about 100,000 people in Jerusalem, but for Passover at this time, there's up to a couple of million people crammed into Jerusalem, right? So it's packed. There's lots of partying, lots of celebrating, lots of worshipping. And coming towards this packed city from the east, from the Mount of Olives, comes Jesus and as he comes towards the city as he arrives and as this scene kind of plays out around him there's a few different groups of people who are reacting to Jesus really differently first there's his his followers right his disciples they are amped they're excited they're full of worship and praise for Jesus as he arrives in Jerusalem He's been teaching them, he's been showing them his power, he's been discipling them for three years. All that time he's been biding his time, stepping away from the spotlight, saying his time had not yet come. But now his time has come. He's, he's on the warpath, he's going big and they're excited about it. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing as he goes big here. His, it's called his messianic self-awareness. He knows who he is as the fulfillment of all the prophecy and the promises of the Old Testament. And he's here claiming and expressing that identity as he comes into Jerusalem. He's deliberately and provocatively placing himself at the central point of God's plans for his people. You can see it as he arrives on this very specific animal right maybe if you haven't read this passage before it's a bit confusing he gets a young donkey that no one has ridden before do you notice how luke records how particular jesus is about this he sends his disciples to find this specific animal right jesus is rolling into jerusalem to declare himself king and, and normally a king coming back from battle, big, you know, victorious ruling king will come in on a big white horse with his army around him. That was the kind of ancient pattern of the day. But Jesus says to his disciples, go and get me a donkey. Can you imagine their reaction, right? It's finally the time where Jesus is going to go big. He's going to put himself in the spotlight. Oh, you're going to go into Jerusalem to make yourself king? Awesome. Go get me a donkey. A donkey, yeah, sure. All right, great, Jesus. Good joke. We'll go get you a big horse. We'll roll and it'll be awesome. No, no, no. A donkey. 
I told you we should have hired that image consultant. This guy has no idea what he's doing, right? How are we supposed to get his Instagram followers up when he pulls things like this all the time? But Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Have a listen to these words from Zechariah 9, chapter 9, that were written half a millennia earlier. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king, is, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. He is the king of Jerusalem arriving in his city, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. So Jesus' disciples, his followers, they're pumped but the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they are not. They're really angry. They're furious about what's going on here. The absolute outrage of this man acting like the Messiah King that they'd been waiting for for centuries. Right? The disciples are laying their coats on the road for Jesus' donkey to walk over. They're paying tribute. They're worshipping him. Jesus is riling up these Jewish leaders as he claims this messianic king identity and he's riling up the roman leaders as well the occupying romans because arriving in town like this like we said it's a it's a victorious king move right the king goes out to battle he defeats his enemies and he comes back into town with captives with treasures with the praise of people as he walks through the city and they're calling out blessed is the king who comes in the name of the lord Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're echoing the words of the angels when Jesus was born, when God came down to earth. And remember, it's Passover, right? Jerusalem is packed. Jerusalem is, is a tinderbox of national pride. Right? Lots of people are excited about their Jewish identity. Lots of people resenting the Roman occupying force. The last thing that the Romans want is anyone pulling a move like what Jesus is doing, any kind of mucking up, anything that could incite rebellion. Jerusalem is a powder keg. And after these years of biding his time, Jesus steps up to the plate. He looks the Jewish leaders in the eye. He looks Rome in the eye and he says, I'm the king. I wonder... How, does, how do you respond when Jesus says, I'm the king? We see how his followers respond, how, how the Jewish leaders, how the Romans respond. How does your heart respond? Does it, does it kind of swell and rejoice like his followers on that day? Or does it push back? Do you plant your feet or reject the premise, Jesus is not my king? He's interesting. He's a compelling teacher He's a moral influence, an ethical example, but he is not my king. If that's you, fair enough. As we're going to see, Jesus gives us dignity to make that choice. But I hope that you see from this story that Jesus' kingship is good. He's a good king. It's a joy to worship him as king. A joy that lots of us here have found. And that his kingship is, in the end, ultimately irresistible.
That, that rejection of Jesus' kingship, that's where the Pharisees in this story are at, right? They push back. They reject Jesus' claim to be king. Have a look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, teacher, not king, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus replies with these amazing words that I, for me, they just kind of lift my heart out of my chest. He says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Have you ever been on a plane at night flying past thunderstorms in a cloud? I was flying, I think, kind of around like Singapore once and we flew past these huge kind of throbbing towers of cloud that were being lit up inside every few seconds by lightning. Or maybe, uh, maybe you've walked on the street past a transformer box on a power pole, right? And you can hear it sizzling and crackling. You can almost feel the air vibrating with the electricity as you walk past. That's what this scene is like here. That's what Jesus himself is like here. He's a man kind of crackling with divine glory. Even the natural world exists to worship him. If we wouldn't worship him, the rocks would cry out. This God-man, he lowered himself to human form, right? He came in the form of a baby, of a man. He came to be one of us. But even in his human form, his divine glory shines through. It overflows from him. Right? At his birth, the angels sang in the heavens. John the Baptist prepared his way. Demons called him the Holy One of God and they bowed to his will. Sickness fled from Jesus. Death was undone by Jesus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' glory shone as he became like lightning, as he communed with God and with Moses and Elijah. God said, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. At the words of Jesus, the proud were brought low the needy were lifted up. Many were brought back to God. His glory spills out like water overflowing a dam wall as he arrives here to take his place as God's king in God's city. Whether you worship him or not, Jesus is king. If you won't praise the rocks will cry out. The very fabric of the universe worships Jesus. Stars are born and die at his hand. Endless sunrise and sunset circles the earth as he paints them. Deep oceans are filled with life, all for him. I was hiking once in the desert and I saw the sunrise over the endless, the dunes that just stretched out to the horizon. And as the sun came up, the mist of the night was flowing between the dunes like water across the landscape. And you could just see the top of the dunes through the mist. And as the sun came up and the day warmed, the mist was burned off until it was bright morning. If I hadn't been there, do you think that scene would have brought God glory? You bet. The rocks cry out his praise. Colossians 1 puts it like this. In him 
all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. The universe is arranged around King Jesus. That's the king we worship. That's the king who rode into Jerusalem on that day to fight his great war against death and to conquer the grave. But what, what kind of king is he? What's his character? It matters what kind of king he is. Right? It matters what he's like because the, the history of kings, of human kings, is not a good history. That's what we're seeing in our small groups at the moment, right? What happens with human kings? Throughout history, when men have asked for absolute power and it's been granted to them or they've taken it by force, things have not gone well. How does that, that saying go? Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Ancient kings enslaved nations, slaughtered their enemies, dictators have brainwashed their people, the, the uncontrolled power of, of villains like Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot, they led to massive death, degradation of, humans, of human flourishing. But it matters what a king is like. And so if Jesus is going to claim to be king, if he's going to claim the rule over God's people and over the world and over me and over you, then nothing matters more than what kind of king he is the kind of man that he is, the kind of God that he is. Let's, let's find out a bit about what kind of king he is. Read with me from verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. As Jesus comes over the mountain, there's Jerusalem arrayed in front of him, right, packed with people, mostly ignoring him, mostly with no idea that he's even there. They're busy engaging in a sacrificial and ritual worship that pointed to Jesus, who is there among them. They're missing him and he weeps for them. His heart is broken for them because he sees that they're missing their Messiah. If you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. Me, he says, I would bring you peace. Not just political peace, but deep peace, the deepest peace there is between you and God. I would undo the fall. I would mend what is broken in your hearts. I would bring you back to God, your creator. The very name Jerusalem means city of peace and they're missing this one who brings peace standing among them. Jesus says, it's hidden from your eyes. I was at a wedding once uh, it was a friend of Ronnie's from uni who I'd met a few times but I'd never met her fiance or family or anything uh, and it was a very lavish 
wedding. So it was that kind of awkward experience where you're a plus one at a wedding and you're hyper aware of how much they're paying for you to be there. These people who are basically complete strangers to you, right, to just come and have a free feed. Anyway, so we're chatting to people before the ceremony starts in the foyer and I'm getting to know this guy, I'm asking him about his work, whatever, just kind of making small talk and thinking, okay, maybe, maybe this guy is the guy that I can kind of sit with and chat with awkwardly while Ronnie wants to dance with her uni friends later, uh, but I don't want to go and dance with them. Maybe this is, this is the guy for me. Uh, and after a couple of minutes of chatting, getting to know each other a little bit, he starts doing the kind of... Um, conversational move where he starts to try to exit himself from the conversation uh, and as he was kind of starting to withdraw from the conversation I asked him oh so how do you know the bride and he, he looked at me and he said I'm getting married to her <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I'd been chatting with the groom the guy who was paying for me to be there and I had no idea who I was talking to Jerusalem God's people are missing the very person that they are there to worship. Jesus' disciples, they're laying down their coats and crying out praise to God, but the nation are mostly just ignoring him. But you notice Jesus' response isn't anger to that. He's about to get angry in the temple where the money changes are blocking people from God, but as he looks at his people here, as they ignore him, he's heartbroken for them. Verse 43, he says, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So this is actually one of three times that Jesus kind of laments over Jerusalem like this. And what he's doing is he's predicting the destruction of the temple and the sacking of Jerusalem that will happen in 70 AD, so a few decades after his time. When that rising tide of nationalism that we kind of anticipate here at the Passover rises to the point where Rome intervenes and brutally shuts it down. See, Jesus here, he's not, he's not making threats. He's not lashing out. He's weeping as he anticipates what will happen to these people because of their rejection of the king of the universe. He's the, the agonizing wonder of the gospel. Jesus is the only king. The only king. Trusting and worshipping him is life to the full. And the penalty for rejecting him is death. Not because he's cruel or selfish, but because he truly is God. He's the one who made us, the one who gives us breath. We exist for his glory. And so if we don't give it to him, he's right to judge and condemn us. He makes a way for us to come back to him. He makes the way for us to trust and worship him. And he invites us into that life with infinite power, yet with humility. He's humble 
Right? Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, if anyone is thirsty, come to me and drink. We come to him by his power, right? chosen before the foundation of the world. Yet it is certainly that Jesus invites us to come to him and he grants us the dignity of rejecting him. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus cries over his city. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. This king doesn't subjugate his people. He doesn't oppress his people. Though the universe exists for him, he gives humanity the dignity of choice and he weeps as many choose to turn from his loving rule to futility and death. The father of the prodigal son allows his child to reject him and walk away. He's humble and he's heartbroken when his people turn away from the life that he's inviting them into. But don't for a moment think that he's weak. When Jesus entered the temple courts, as verse 45, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey. He weeps over the city that's rejecting him and then he goes into the temple and goes into Hulk mode. It's demolition day. He starts flipping tables, driving people out of the temple. My house will be a house of prayer, he says, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Now, we've just said that Jesus' character matters if he's going to claim to be king, right? Then he goes and starts a fight in the temple. Imagine his disciples now, right? Not only has Jesus ridden in on a donkey and missed that golden opportunity, now he's kicking over tables, he's shouting in the temple like a crazy guy during the Passover. Everyone's filming him, right? They know he's going to be on the news tonight, If this part of Jesus' character worries you, if what he's doing here feels inconsistent with what you know of Jesus, let me just say that this is exactly the king that I want. Because what what Jesus is doing here is not this, right? (laughs) It's not an uncontrolled act of aggression and violence in a kind of heightened emotional state. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is not going to be banned for 10 years from the Passover. (laughs) It's it's more like this. It's, It's righteous outrage at those who would harm God's people and the absolute determination that it will not continue. This is God's house. The temple is the place 
of grace where God lowers himself to meet with humanity, where people have the mind-blowing opportunity to relate to the God of the universe as they bring their sacrifices to honour him. And yet these opportunistic bottom feeders outside had turned this place of grace into a place of exploitation and profit. They're selling sacrifices at inflated prices. They're exchanging money at unfair rates. They're sinking their claws into people's devotion to God and exploiting it for themselves. They're putting barriers between God and his people. They're compromising people's access to God's grace. They're insulting his glory and his presence. What they're doing is despicably far from the heart of God. And King Jesus will not have anyone place fire had tried to hurt his daughter. Imagine what that guy would have done to 15-year-old Sam, right? Jesus sees these dodgy businessmen trying to hurt his people and he says, get out. When I was a kid, I was overseas with my family and we were trying to get onto a train at this packed train station and there were all these gross guys kind of hanging around us leering at my mum and my sister and one of them tried to kind of grab at mum as we were getting on the train and my dad who is not a particularly big guy and is usually very gentle and easygoing guy grabbed him and pinned him against the side of the train while the rest of us got on I remember kind of standing there wide-eyed, looking at Dad in a new way as he climbed up into the train behind us, right? Jesus defends his people. He's humble and he's strong. His weeping over Jerusalem shows us that this king allows people to reject him. He's not a despot, but he won't tolerate his people being blocked from him. He's the lion and the lamb. He puts himself between God's people and those who would pull them away. He does it with these exploitative merchants here and he does it again a week later on the cross. On the cross, once for all, as these crowds that shouted praise now shout, crucify him. Jesus gives himself for us in the ultimate display of humble power. The king of the universe allows sinful people to punish him for crimes that he's never committed so that in his death he would take the punishment that we deserve for rejecting his rule. He loves his people so much that he weeps over Jerusalem and he loves his people so much that he dies that they might live. Soon we're going to sing to reveal the kingdom coming, to reconcile the lost, to redeem the whole creation. He did not despise the cross. And in his humble power, power without measure, he rose from the grave for the lamb had conquered death to bring a new reality, a new eternity that he invites us into. Before we sing, though, 
I want to read one more passage of scripture for us. Because Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is not his last arrival as king. The one who is the king of everything. The one that the rocks cry out worship to, whether we worship him or not, will arrive again one day to be worshipped by his people and to kick out their enemies. Hear these words from Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth, is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You cannot welcome the King of Kings on his white horse with the armies of heaven following behind him until you have welcomed, trusted, loved, worshipped the humble king riding on a donkey who has come to die for your sins that you might live to God. And if up until now, if you have rejected King Jesus, if you've rejected his claim to be king of the world and king of your life, then accept his offer of life and you will find new life in him. There is no too far, there is no too late for God. I do it tonight and tell someone. Tell someone that you know here or, or come up for prayer at the end of the service and tell the person there so that they can rejoice with the angels in heaven and with you and help you know what to do next. I'm going to pray to our king now before we sing to him. So would you pray with me? King Jesus, thank you for fighting for us. Thank you for not leaving us to our sin and death but coming to liberate us and give us more than we could ever hope for. Thank you that before you come on a white horse with the armies of heaven, you came as a man on a donkey to die for us. Jesus, let us worship you with our lips, our hearts, our lives. Amen.